We've all been there. You're sitting on an exam table waiting to see your doctor after waiting months to get an appointment. Finally, the door swings open. The doctor briefly reviews your chart, asks a couple questions, scribbles down a prescription, and heads off to see their dozens of other patients scheduled for that day. The whole appointment lasts maybe 10 minutes, and you're left feeling like a number in a system. What if the healthcare system was structured around quality of care instead of the quantity of patients seen? It's really a win-win for the patients. It's a way for them to receive better care. It's a win for the physician because we want the patients to get to that better care. And it's a win for the system because it's lower cost care. That's nephrologist, Dr. Manish Tana. I'm Sarah Jane Castro, Director of Marketing and Communications for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois, and your host for this edition of The Journey Continues. Dr. Tana joins us to talk about value-based care and what it means for the future of kidney health. This episode is generously sponsored by Nanny, Nephrology Associates of Northern Illinois and Indiana. Dr. Tana, why did you decide to become a nephrologist? I became interested in nephrology because I am uh, interested in taking care of patients with respect to the intricacies of their kidney function. And this is something that is more easily measured in nephrology than in other subspecialties. We get instant gratification when we see that we can improve measurable blood test items like sodium and potassium and creatinine. And other subspecialties really didn't give me that kind of immediate feedback in terms of how I was doing as a physician. And of course, during my training, one of the best teachers I ever had was a nephrologist. And so I decided that that really was where I wanted my career path to go. And I'm very pleased now having spent the last 23 years of my career in nephrology that I think that I chose the right one. That's got to be gratifying to see measurable results in your patients. Why is kidney care so important? approximately one in eight Americans have kidney disease. And 90% of those that have kidney disease aren't aware that they have kidney disease. And oftentimes when patients are diagnosed with kidney disease, they are often at advanced levels, levels that are at a point where they most likely cannot get back to a normal level of kidney function that they had once had. So kidney disease is a very important condition that really needs to have strong measures of detection. And when detected, uh, we need to provide good advice in terms of how to prevent worsening of kidney disease. And that often requires us to focus on chronic illnesses like diabetes and hypertension. So kidney disease is a disease that is prevalent, often underdiagnosed, certainly during the last three years during the pandemic, and can have significant consequences. And happily is something that we are getting better at postponing and eventually replacing with respect to kidney transplant. Why is that? Do you think that so many patients don't know they have kidney disease until it's in those later stages? We are blessed with so much reserve with respect to kidney function that those chronic conditions that I mentioned, diabetes and hypertension as being the number one and two causes of kidney disease in the Western world, often are causing damage to our kidney filters that's going on for a period of years, if not decades. 
And so by the time somebody is getting tested for their kidney function, that condition may have already progressed to a significant degree. And unfortunately, with our recommendations during the pandemic, where we asked patients to stay away from healthcare facilities, stay away from hospitals, we saw that patients weren't getting the necessary visits, the regular testing that they had once been doing pre-pandemic. And now, unfortunately, we're seeing patients present at later stages of kidney disease than we had pre-pandemic. Yeah, that makes sense that if you weren't going to your normal appointments, you wouldn't be necessarily aware because like you said, there aren't those early symptoms in those first few stages of kidney disease. How do most of the patients come to you there at Nanny? Are they referred from their primary care physician? How do you get a patient? Traditionally, we receive patients through referrals, usually from a primary care provider like a family practice doctor or an internal medicine doctor, sometimes from an endocrinologist who is treating the patient for diabetes, sometimes from a rheumatologist who's treating the patient for lupus nephritis. Interestingly, with the advent of Google and the internet, we are seeing patients seek our services. Patients are now much more in tune with looking over their blood tests and evaluating for abnormalities by comparing to their reference ranges. And they are looking for further input regarding kidney disease. Kidney disease, of course, is a scary thing for many people. When people think about kidney disease, they think about dialysis and they want to intervene on any abnormality in kidney function as quickly as possible. And so we do see referrals that are self-referred because patients don't necessarily want to wait for their primary physician to refer, but rather they want to get a head start in learning about what treatments are available to delay progression of kidney disease. If somebody comes to your practice in, let's say, stage one or two of kidney disease, they have the ability to potentially slow the progression of that disease? The stages of kidney disease is, is an interesting topic because stage one indicates a EGFR or estimated glomerular filtration rate of over 90 cc's a minute, which is considered normal kidney function. And so we typically will see patients at the very earliest, they'll come and be referred to us at stage two or more advanced stages, stage three or four. Typically, when patients do present at earlier stages, it's for other reasons. For example, there may be some protein spillage in the urine. Patients might notice some bubbles in their urine indicating protein spillage in the urine. Or patients may have been told that they have uncontrolled high blood pressure. They may notice symptoms such as swelling of the legs, and that precipitates a referral to the nephrologist. So we do see referrals come in for abnormal kidney function, as you say, based on the EGFR or based on the blood creatinine levels. But sometimes we see patients present with other issues, which are then reflective of underlying kidney disease. So let's talk about value-based care. What is value-based care? Simply put, value-based care is a focus on improving the quality of care, and in our case, improving the quality of kidney care. And we know through our prior experiences with models that look at quality that the greater the quality of the care, 
the less the cost of care. And we know that specifically from, let's take uh, dialysis access, for example. The easiest way for us to plan dialysis if somebody needs dialysis is to have a central catheter placed in one of the great veins of the neck. We call that the jugular vein. And that process can take less than a half hour to place, and then we can start somebody on dialysis in an emergent situation. That's easier, and often that has been the culture of how we start dialysis in this country. What we have realized is that that type of procedure can lead to increased problems that the patient develops, as well as an increased rate of mortality. And so we realize that if we can improve the way we start somebody on dialysis without the reliance on these catheters in the great veins of the neck, we can actually improve the patient's quality of care by reducing the complications that they incur and even reduce the likelihood of mortality. And so that's just one example of how quality of care can reduce cost of care because certainly hospitalization and additional procedures and rehospitalizations and IV antibiotics and intensive care units, these are very costly ways of taking care of somebody. And these are directly attributable, attributable to the use of central venous catheters. So how is value-based care different than the traditional healthcare model we have here in the U.S.? Value-based care means that we are laser-focused on improving the quality of care. An example of value-based care would be a increased focus on getting our patients who have advanced kidney disease a way of kidney replacement. In other words, kidney transplants. We very much want to improve the throughput. In other words, the ability of the patients to maneuver from renal transplantation referral through the workup process, through listing, through the actual transplant itself. What we're noticing with initiatives in value-based care is that those medical practices that make investments in increasing the speed through which patients can get through that process of workup and eventual transplantation, we're going to see a higher transplant rate. Of course, when somebody who has advanced kidney disease is referred for kidney replacement or dialysis, that is typically associated with an estimated GFR of less than 15 or less than 10%. And oftentimes patients are complaining of feeling really tired, worn out, feeling cold all the time, and certainly developing symptoms, perhaps tremors, perhaps leg swelling, perhaps shortness of breath. And if we can engineer a faster transplant process for that patient, that patient goes from having an eGFR of less than 10% to an eGFR of over 80% with a transplant, which means that they're going to live a better quality of life. And from a financial perspective, I find that some of my patients are surprised to learn that the dialysis procedure costs the system about $100,000 a year, whereas wow. a transplant would cost the system about $10,000 a year. That's another easy example of how 
increase quality-based or what we call value-based care, and in this case, improving the speed through which patients get through the transplant process, not only can get patients to a better outcome and a better well-being overall, but can save the system a lot in terms of dollars. And Mm. so it's a win-win. And uh, these are the types of easy things that we want to focus on in terms of improving quality of care. Transplant is not an easy process as we know. So what we've done at our practice in Nanny, uh, which is a large practice, which spans two states, but we've been able to hire staff. For example, we've hired two transplant coordinators. And so what these transplant coordinators have been able to do is rather than just telling our patients, hey, you have to call this transplant center or that transplant center and make an appointment and start that process on your own, we actually have a team of people who can help get that process started and even advanced. And so uh, we feel good about these types of interventions. And that's just one example of a a type of intervention that we would use in a quality or a value-based care type arrangement. And it's really a win-win for the patients. It's a way for them to receive better care. And it's a win for the physician because we want the patients to get to that better care. And it's a win for the system because it's lower cost care. What does the payment structure look like for value-based care versus regular churning patients in and out of your office sort of care? The payment structure in terms of the effect on the patients, none. In other words, uh, the patients are uh, not expected to pay more. They're not expected to uh, have a higher copay. They're not expected to have any financial consequence as of receiving this type of uh, increase in focused uh, renal care. The focus on the physicians is a little bit daunting uh, because some of the payment programs that we are facing from CMS, in other words, Medicare, are payment programs that really focus the onus, the responsibility of the total cost of care on the physicians. And so right now our practice is involved with at least two payment programs with CMS that directly place total cost of care on the physicians. So the physicians are paid a certain sum and they are tasked with achieving certain quality measures. In addition, they are tasked with taking care of that patient for the amount of compensation that Medicare deems as being appropriate. That means that physicians can be left in difficult situations of having to worry about what the spend is. In other words, what the cost of care is going to be. So that is something that we often are worried about as physicians. But on the other hand, it is also an opportunity for us because as we mentioned earlier, in terms of kidney transplant, it's well known that a kidney transplant is going to give our patients a better quality of life and it's a less expensive alternative to dialysis. So that means that we have to really focus our energies on getting our patients to kidney transplant. With respect to the topic of kidney replacement or dialysis, when we talk about the two types of dialysis, we know that home dialysis is much less costly than in-center dialysis. And we know that home dialysis, for example, peritoneal dialysis or or home hemodialysis, 
is associated with more independence from the patient. Patients then develop control of their chronic kidney disease by choosing home therapies. That is a win for the patient. And in terms of the cost of care, that's a win for the system. It's a less costly modality. So we then have to really provide education for our patients explaining why home dialysis is a more preferable type of dialysis than in-center dialysis, which means that we have to do a better job at educating patients as to home dialysis. Something that we haven't really focused on in the last several decades has been our ability to provide education regarding kidney disease or, or renal replacement therapies. And that's something that we are changing. For example, our practice spent approximately six months looking at various kidney disease education platforms, which include modules on your iPhone or Android with respect to uh, cartoons or kidney disease education via YouTube videos versus actual videos that you would see in a doctor's office, let's say over 20 minutes, followed by a question answer session thereafter versus an actual RN educator who could meet with our patients in person and go over their particular situation and answer questions specifically to that patient versus referring to dialysis organizations because they have kidney educators versus referring to transplant centers because they have educators as well. So there's a whole array of resources available to provide that kidney education. But programs like this with respect to value-based care really put the onus on the nephrologists to own it, to provide it, to make sure that it's available and to make sure that our patients who are at risk of needing dialysis and or kidney transplant receive that education so that they can choose the type of dialysis that they would have chosen had they had enough time to be educated on it. Unfortunately, we see a lot of patients in our country having to need dialysis in emergent situations. When they get into the hospital unexpectedly and they're told by one of the uh, physicians, whether it's in the emergency room or uh, a kidney physician, that they need to start dialysis unexpectedly in the hospital. When we see that happen, where patients are starting dialysis in the hospital unexpectedly, we see a higher reliance on a central venous catheter which we know is associated with a higher risk of complications later on and is associated with a higher risk of mortality. This is another example of how a focus on quality or value-based care can focus on providing our patients better education, which will then allow the patients to choose home dialysis by and large, which will then allow us to plan for home dialysis and will get patients to a point where they're taking more ownership, where they're taking more independence, where they're happier with where they are, and hopefully we're buying time to get to that next step, which is the transplant. I love that you're giving all of the information and allowing patients to make informed decisions. So you mentioned Medicare. Is Medicare the only option for providing value-based care? Can someone with private insurance have access to value-based care? So Medicare is often the leader when we talk about how healthcare entities, specifically insurance companies, look at late stage or uh, patients with advanced kidney disease. What we have seen is that different insurance companies are looking at what Medicare is doing 
and they are replicating what Medicare is doing. So, for example, we have seen several insurance companies approach us and say, listen, we like what you guys have done with respect to your programs for Medicare. We'd like to see you achieve similar types of measures for our programs for these separate patients. And so they look to Medicare to set those types of measures and to set the benchmarks for us to achieve and to perhaps even do additional measures based on uh, the desires of the particular insurance carrier. And we see ourselves partnering with those insurance companies to provide this increased focus on quality for them as well. And that's led us to increase the number of people we have brought on our team to take care of patients. So I had already mentioned about the transplant coordinators. And then, of course, we have care managers and RN educators and nurse practitioners who also help with following the patients, making sure that they are getting that appointment with their transplant center or with their cardiologist or with their vascular surgeon, if it's for hemodialysis. So we now have a team of people that is able to help engineer these improved quality outcomes. And we're realizing that these investments that we've made as a medical practice don't just apply to Medicare programs, but also apply to these other programs that other insurance companies are interested in. And so we're realizing that this pilot that we initially began in 2015 with Medicare is now evolving and increasing. And we feel good about how we are progressing and how we are learning to take better care of patients. How do the payers, the insurance providers, Medicare, so forth, how do they measure that success or that efficacy in a physician's office? So this has been a, a topic that we've often thought about as well. As we talk with insurance companies and they ask us, well, what do you think, doctor? What do you think about uh, the best measures of quality? How, If it were your loved one, if it were your best friend, what would you look at in terms of these measures? So measures that are already out there are measures of engagement. How well do our patients understand their medical condition? How confident are they about the medications that we prescribe? And how confident are they in being able to tell us about new conditions that they might have or diets that they need to follow, even during times of stress, which of course is where we are when someone is approached with a diagnosis of kidney disease. It's a huge time of stress, not just for that person, but for their families as well. So patient engagement measures, which is a specifically a type of survey, we ask our patients to complete those and then we measure those and then we provide education and then we remeasure those surveys and we determine the improvement. We want to know, are we improving the level of engagement with our patients, specifically with the use of these surveys? So that's one quality measure that's already out there. A second quality measure, which is already out there, is a depression screen. The depression screen is well known. Uh, a lot of our colleagues in primary care have been using depression screens for years. And uh, of course, in the dialysis clinics, we've been used to uh, assessing depression for our dialysis patients, but we really never focused on depression in our advanced 
chronic kidney disease patients. And so this is another measure where we are instituting that in our offices when we take care of our patients with chronic kidney disease. We really need to focus on are we measuring the depression and are we acting on those measures of depression? So that would be number two in terms of the measures out there. Number three would be how well are we able to educate patients to undergo dialysis with the type of modality, with the type of dialysis, dialysis that they would have chosen had they been educated. In other words, how well are we encouraging patients to undergo dialysis without the reliance on a catheter in the neck? And we can measure that. If we see that some of our practices are relying too much on those central venous catheters, then we say, hey, there's an opportunity here. Maybe we're not providing the education we need. Maybe our patients in that area are not able to access that type of education for uh, reasons that uh, may involve health equity. These are the measures that are already out there, and these have been determined primarily by Medicare. In terms of additional measures that we think about uh, with respect to quality kidney care, certainly transplant weightlifting and transplantation are measures that we do have access to and which could be used as a way of determining quality of kidney care. We certainly know that those areas that have a higher degree of transplant weightlifting will have a higher degree of actual successful transplantation, which will lead to better quality of life for the patient. So that would be one area where I would suggest we focus more as a community. You mentioned health equity. Are there other potential downsides or gaps in this care model? Very much so, Sarah. Thank you for asking that. So um, one of the biggest gaps that I would address with the nephrology community and certainly with our insurance companies, including CMS, is the need for staff-assist dialysis. We are having a hard time allowing patients to choose home dialysis, which we have already said will improve their quality of life, will increase their sense of independence. But sometimes we are in situations, as you say, where patients may not have a home situation which is conducive towards performing home dialysis or we may have a situation where there's really not a person at home, a spouse, a daughter, a son, a cousin, somebody who can help the patient perform home dialysis. If we could pay for, as a system, if we could pay for somebody to be trained to help the patient with home dialysis, I think our home dialysis rates would increase significantly. It's something that we have talked about Unfortunately, we're in a situation uh, in terms of uh, healthcare dollars where we are making decisions that are often difficult decisions in an effort to determine where Medicare wants to put its focus. But we are arguing strongly to insurance companies and to Medicare for the need of staff assist dialysis. We think that that's going to help increase the penetration of home therapies. In addition, we see transplantation in some of our underserved areas is lacking. We need to improve access to transplantation in underserved areas, areas that have difficulty in accessing the healthcare system. 
we have areas in the Chicago area which have a low penetration of primary care physicians. Patients who aren't able to access their primary care physicians, they won't have their kidney disease detected, uh, much less delayed in progression. And so uh, that's a decrease in access to transplantation, specifically due to access to care. That is something that we as a nephrology practice have tried to address as we have partnered with a company that is able to provide home-based services. And so uh, our partner in uh, value-based care is a company by the name of Strive. And so Strive has been able to provide us with resources that we could not obtain on our own in terms of a nephrology practice. Resources such as uh, access to primary care, such as access to nurse practitioners who could perform home visits, access to social workers, access to dietitians. These types of members of the healthcare team are very important and yet are underutilized, especially in those areas where we see decreased access to care. So how can patients determine if they're receiving this quality-based, value-based care? Is there a way to look at a physician's website and determine that? Or is it having a conversation? How can they figure that out? The first thing that we advise our patients to do, and even if they're not our patients, what we would advise anybody to do is if let's detect So the first thing we have to do is make sure you get to your primary care physician, make sure you have an evaluation yearly. That evaluation should include certainly a blood pressure, certainly a measure of how we're doing in terms of uh, weight uh, or uh, body mass index, and certainly lab work, which would include a blood sugar measurement as well as a blood creatinine, which is a way for us to determine the function of the kidneys which also is associated with an EGFR or the estimated glomerular filtration rate. So those four things are the basics of detection. After somebody gets through that initial stage, and if someone is diagnosed with chronic kidney disease, then the next stage is to talk to the primary care physician and find out what kinds of therapies, whether they be medication or whether they be behavioral, or whether they be diet, what types of therapies are available that can help delay the progression of kidney disease? And certainly that would focus on healthy eating, that would focus on exercise and weight loss, as well as measurement of variables that are abnormal, such as home blood pressures, such as home blood sugars if somebody has diabetes. We need to have these types of data in order to measure how we're doing with delaying progression of kidney disease. And then the third step would be to ask our primary care physicians whether it's necessary to go see a kidney doctor. Often that will involve an assessment of the urine as well. And the urine, of course, is important in the initial assessment of kidney function because sometimes we see patients who have a lot of protein in the urine Sometimes patients will tell us they have those bubbles in the urine, and that can be associated with significant chronic kidney disease, even though those first tests that I spoke about earlier, the blood creatinine or the blood sugar, even though those are normal, if we see a lot of protein in the urine, that can be a worrisome sign. And at that point, that might be a reason to have the primary care physician either start an array of medications or refer to a nephrologist to uh, start that 
follow-up. We are pleased because we now have medicines that are available that can help us delay progression of kidney disease. Certainly technology has increased. The methods of kidney transplant have improved and our ability to use medications to delay kidney disease progression has also improved. So I would encourage everybody who is uh, worried about chronic kidney disease to have a good chat with their primary care physician. And if there are warning signs or other physical symptoms that might indicate significant kidney disease to be evaluated further by a kidney specialist. What are you excited about for the future of kidney health? You mentioned these medications that are on the market now. What else are you excited about? The first thing we are excited about is there are significant medicines out there that are able to help our patients with weight loss. Weight loss is one of the key drivers of lowering blood pressure and lowering blood sugar. And lowering blood pressure and lowering blood sugar is a key driver of delaying progression of chronic kidney disease. So that would be the first thing is these medications that are being used for weight loss, quite exciting for us because we're going to see delayed progression simply because of that. Uh, The second thing we want to emphasize is there are a class of medicines that were studied in 1990 to delay progression of kidney disease. We call those the ACE inhibitors. We know a significant proportion of people who have kidney disease are still not maintained on those types of kidney-preserving, blood pressure-lowering medications. So there's opportunity there. The third thing that we're excited about is we have a class of medicines now called the SGLT2 inhibitors. And I don't think that we have to remember that acronym, but simply put, we have a class of medicines out there which has traditionally been used for patients who have diabetes because they lower blood sugar. But now we recognize that these medicines also have significant kidney protective properties, even delaying kidney disease progression by a factor of 10 years. We are recognizing that we need to be using more of those medications as well. The more data that we are accumulating on that family of medicines, the more convinced we are that we need to use more of them. And in fact, even though those medicines are being utilized for blood sugar lowering, those medicines called the SGLT2 inhibitors, they were approved in 2021 by the FDA to be used even in non-diabetics for people who have chronic kidney disease. So that's a very exciting development. This is all in an attempt to delay progression of kidney disease. Haven't even talked about the improvements we've had in dialysis or in kidney transplantation, which have been significant. Many of us have been following the pig transplantation stories. We are quite interested in developments in kidney transplant. We know that there are over 3,000 patients in Illinois that are waiting for a kidney transplant. We need to get more kidneys to these patients. We know that transplant is the way to go. It is not dialysis. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us today before we wrap up? I wanted to thank you for this opportunity to allow me to speak. I have been practicing for over 20 years in uh, my nephrology group, and I have never been more excited about our treatments for our patients as I am today. I feel very good about the things that we can do for patients. What I would ask of those who are listening on this podcast, if you are uh, diagnosed with uh, chronic kidney disease, please 
make your doctor visits, attend them regularly, listen to your physician about the types of behavioral modifications that you need to make in your diet. If they ask about seeing a dietitian, take advantage of that. If you are having coping issues with being diagnosed with a chronic condition, ask to see a social worker or ask to get help about these. These are normal feelings that many people have. And so oftentimes when we are diagnosed with a chronic condition, we feel on an island alone and we don't know that there's anybody who can really help us or support us. There are a lot of people with kidney disease. As we had said, one in eight Americans have kidney disease really want to encourage everybody to get the help and and certainly uh, do the things that are necessary. Check those blood sugars if you need to, check those blood pressures if you need to, set an exercise plan, hold yourself accountable, and of course, hold your healthcare team accountable. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. This has been very enlightening discussion. I'm excited about all the things you're doing over at Nanny, and it sounds like we're headed in a good direction in terms of kidney care. Thanks, Sarah. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Each and every one of us deserves high-quality health care. Learn more about getting access to quality care and taking charge of your health at our website, nkfi.org. And thank you again to Nanny, Nephrology Associates of Northern Illinois and Indiana, for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Nanny at nephdocs.com, n-e-p-h-docs.com. I'm Sarah Jane Castro, and this is The Journey Continues. Prevention is a key part of our mission at NKFI. That's why at the end of each episode, Dr. Melissa Prest offers a health or nutrition tip. Here's today's nutrition tip about weight management. People live in bodies of all shapes and sizes. While body mass index, a measurement of your weight to your height, and ideal body weight ranges may or may not be appropriate for you. They are used as a guide to know if you are at risk for developing a chronic health condition. Many people may think weight management is about being on an overly restrictive diet that includes intensive exercising. This actually sets people up for failure and is a large reason why diets don't lead to maintained success. What weight management is about is learning how to make healthy food choices at home and when dining out. It's about learning how to identify when you're hungry or if you're eating for emotional reasons. It's about finding physical activity that allows you to move through a range of motion, strengthens your muscles, and gets your heart pumping. And it's about making choices that will help you maintain your weight or allow you to gradually reduce your weight. It may seem easy to go it alone, but research shows that those who find support and professional guidance are most successful. Here are some tips from people who have had success with weight maintenance. Exercise is important and build up to 200 to 300 minutes per week. This is the equivalent of 30 to 40 minutes a day of activity. Stay hydrated, drink lots of water, and limit sugar-sweetened beverages. Eat whole nutritious foods and focus on foods that are high in fiber. Eat responsibly and mindfully. Pay attention to when you're hungry and when you're full. Plan your meals ahead of time. This allows you to stay on track and make healthful choices. Find fun recipes online or in cookbooks to expand your meal variety. Decrease your screen time and do not eat while distracted. Monitor yourself by keeping a food log, measurements, or weighing in once a week. Join a weight management program for education and support. Build your own support group with family and friends. Keep a positive attitude and believe in yourself and your abilities. Think for the long term. 
The habits you are creating should be long sustaining and not quick fix. And make those changes gradual so that you can stick with them over time. With today's nutrition tip, I'm Melissa Prest, a registered dietitian nutritionist and the foundation dietitian for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois.